Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Clark Neely talks with the founders and director of the Innocence Project upon receiving the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. Budget researcher Adam Schuster details why Illinois is basically a canary in a coal mine with respect to state pensions. Michael Cannon hails the benefits of health savings accounts. Scott Linsicum provides the grim details on why the feds for so long have stood in the way of rapid COVID testing, and Cato's Mustafa Akil details why he, as a Muslim, defends liberty. Every two years, the Cato Institute presents its Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty to a person or group who's made a significant contribution to the cause of human freedom. This year, we were honored to present the Friedman Prize to the Innocence Project, a group that fights to exonerate the wrongfully convicted and implement reforms designed to reduce the number of wrongful convictions. Cato's Clark Neely spoke with Project co-founders Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld and Executive Director Christina Swartz. In recognition of its work to ensure liberty and justice for all by exonerating the wrongfully convicted and advocating reforms to restore accountability to the criminal justice system in accord with the principles of a free society and constitutionally limited government, awarded this 30th day of September, 2021. Congratulations. We're going to have a little conversation now, get a chance to know our friends a little bit better and give them a chance to tell us about their work. Barry, I'd like to start with you. Obviously, we all understand the importance of getting innocent people out of prison or off of death row, but there's a more systemic point to the Innocence Project's work. Can you tell us about that? From the very beginning, we understood that getting an innocent person out of jail was, you know, fantastic. But uh, the real question was, how did they get there in the first place? Um, And what are the root causes uh, that make this happen in our system? And we realized that we were, we really had, uh, uh, we're in a great position because, you know, we knew as public defenders uh, just how the system works in terms of uh, problems of, you know, eyewitness misidentification, false confessions, bad science, uh, lawyers don't do the job, prosecutors and police that uh, go beyond what they should be doing. But uh, we saw, too, that the people that we exonerated had a moral force. Uh, looking at the system from their perspective uh, really could attract sustained attention to issues that people might not otherwise want to engage with. Uh, and just one, I, uh, Kirk Bloodsworth is here. Where are you, Kirk? Uh, <laughs> Kirk Bloodsworth, the kind of thing that we've been able to do, we take an exoneration, we hit an issue, um, and the exoneree can become the spokesperson for the issue. And Kirk, in 2004, uh, went to Congress Uh, passed the Justice for All Act with the assistance of the Bush administration 
and Senator Leahy, which was quite extraordinary. Um, and part of that act is the, the Kirk Bloodsworth program uh, that uh, gives funding to state governments uh, to do DNA testing, all because of him. Uh, and I should add that he's now the executive director to Witness to Innocence, which is a group of people that have been exonerated off death row, uh, and they do fantastic work. Peter, um, as a co-founder of the Innocence Project, um, particularly in the beginning, the Innocence Project tended to focus on cases involving DNA evidence. Could you explain why that is? Sure. I mean, they've been wrongful convictions for a long time, and when somebody put forward the uh, argument that someone was wrongly convicted, there was always a refutation. Um, people could interpret the evidence different ways. Um, and so we were looking for something that was, you know, foolproof. Um, if you can imagine, uh, all of these people, uh, Barry mentioned uh, Kirk Bloodsworth, uh, Marvin Anderson, you're here also. Could you stand for a second? You saw him in the movie. Okay. So, so, you know, Kirk gets sentenced to death in Maryland because there were three eyewitnesses. And his conviction is affirmed on appeal all the way up to the highest court. It's challenged under uh, collateral attack, habeas corpus, affirmed again. Uh, same thing with Marvin Anderson, uh, a one witness ID. Um, she was sure that's all the courts needed. So after many, many years, that conviction kept being affirmed. Um, so you can imagine that there's a great deal of, uh, well, you know, people are just in disbelief when someone asserts a claim of innocence. You know, we've all heard that, oh, I was innocent, and people don't necessarily believe it. So you have that problem. You have the problem of institutional and human bias against the fact that, that maybe the system made a mistake. And then you have this doctrine called the doctrine of finality, which is a legal doctrine that's been around since uh, uh, the beginning of the Constitution that says at a certain point, after a person's appealed a conviction, it's over, we don't care anymore. So we knew that we needed a piece of evidence that if it indicated innocence, then the judges would agree, then the prosecutors would agree. The press would agree, the public would agree, and it would no longer be uh, speculation, there would no longer be any kind of refutation. And DNA was that. And DNA, you know, when, when, when it's a rape murder of a, of a 90-year-old person, uh, and you have the DNA which not only proves, by the way, in each of their cases, the DNA not only excluded them as the person who committed the crime, but the DNA actually identify the person who in fact committed the crime. So when you have that kind of evidence, people now believe in innocence. And, and we use DNA to get that kind of buildup of public consciousness and support for what we were doing. But after a number of years doing that, um, the consciousness of the nation changed. People began to accept the notion that our criminal legal systems are in fact quite vulnerable. And now there are a number of innocence organizations around the country that have gone beyond DNA and are looking at non-DNA cases where there's other compelling indicia of innocence. And in fact, we're now at that point where we're going to expand our, our data set from just DNA cases to non-DNA cases as well because 
the American public is now receptive to that vulnerability and receptive to the willingness and desire to exonerate people uh, for all kinds of reasons. So that's the basis of it. <laughs> I want to bring Christine into the conversation, but I have a quick follow-up uh, for Barry. Um, the Innocence Project has exonerated nearly 400 people since it began in 1992. I think it's pretty clear that's only the tip of the iceberg, but do we have any reliable estimates about the percentage of false convictions in our system? Well, the best study, interestingly, was done by Sam Gross and Barbara O'Brien, professors uh, from Michigan, uh, who now uh, founded the Registry on Exonerations, uh, which if you go to their website, uh, that counts all the exonerations since 1989, which is the year that DNA began, so we use that as the starting point, uh, DNA and non-DNA, uh, and they do terrific work. Uh, but they did this study, they published it in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, and they were able to get a data set where we really understood a lot about the cases, and that happened to be capital cases. So they took a data set of capital cases, they did a deep dive, and they were really able to come up with an error rate for it, um, which was around 4.1%. Now that may seem, oh, that's small. It's not small when you have 2 million people in prison uh, on serious felony charges. Uh, so we always knew there were thousands more, but the problem is capital cases, we know a lot about them. Yeah, people really look at them. What about all those other serious felony cases uh, where attention is not being paid? Uh, it's pretty clear to us that while at this point uh, uh, people say, oh, it's unknowable. It's not unknowable. We have lousy data, to be honest with you, in the criminal justice system. When we get more of it, we'll see more of these errors, but there's plenty of innocent people out there that are still in prison. Christina, we, we heard from George Will earlier about uh, the fact that the vast majority of criminal convictions in our system today are not obtained through constitutionally prescribed jury trials. They're obtained through something we somewhat euphemistically call plea bargaining. Um, despite the Supreme Court's, I think, rather fanciful assurances that this is an essentially perfect mechanism for determining guilt, we know that innocent people have been induced to plead guilty to crimes they didn't commit. How can that possibly happen? That's a great question, and I'm going to give you all an example to explain how it happens. Uh, Rodney Roberts was a gentleman that lived in New Jersey. Uh, he had a job. He had moved to a very lovely community. He put his son in school. Um, he was you know, living the dream, sort of living a regular person's life. One night, he got into an altercation. He was arrested. He went to the police precinct. He expected to be charged with simple assault. He wasn't released, though. He wasn't released that night. He wasn't released the next night. He wasn't released the night after that. He was instead taken to the county jail, where, when he met his public defender, he was told for the first time that he was being charged with the rape of a 17-year-old. As you can imagine, he was flabbergasted. He had no idea that this was you know, even a possibility. He was not guilty of this crime. Fast forward, he didn't have the money. Jail, so he was held in jail. Um, his, with, you know, his kid is out. Um, he has a family that he's trying to support. He's going to lose his job because he can't get out of jail. Um, fast forward, and his, his lawyer comes to him and says, well, the prosecutor has a deal for you. 
you can go home in a couple of years. All you have to do is plead guilty. If, however, you go to trial, uh, you're going to lose because you've been identified in a lineup, and you're going to get a life sentence. Mr. Roberts makes the decision that is rational under those circumstances. He says, I have a child that I need to take care of. I have a family. I have to go home. Um, and while I am absolutely innocent of this, this charge, I can't stay in prison. I can't stay here and risk a life sentence. So he makes the rational choice to plead guilty. And he thinks that he can come out and then fight it on the other side. Rodney spends 18 years in prison for a crime he was not guilty of, and he was ultimately exonerated by DNA. This is how the system works. There are so many cases that come through the courts. Prosecutors are incentivized to offer um, these kinds of, make, make these kinds of plea offers to people who are going through the system, and it, it incentivizes people to plead guilty regardless of whether or not they're innocent because they can't risk losing their families, losing their jobs, losing their, their children, losing their, their homes. And so the choice is made ultimately to plead guilty. So the system burdens the presumption of innocence so profoundly that innocent people plead guilty because that becomes the rational choice. Another question for you. Um, you know, when I came over to Cato to do criminal justice reform work, one of the most horrifying things that I learned about in a system that I think is full of horrors is called the trial penalty. And I wonder if you could tell people who never heard of the trial penalty what it is and what role does it play in our system? It's, it's exactly the same as the story of, of Rodney Roberts, right? It is the practice of saying, um, although we all understand that the state bears the burden of proving someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, um, if you choose, as a person that is innocent and going through the system, to hold the state to that burden, um, there's going to be an enormous cost to you, meaning that if you ask the state to show its proof, to show its cards, to prove you guilty, then you will face an enormous amount of time in prison far more than you will face if you plead guilty right after you're arrested, far more than you will face if you plead guilty after you've been 30 days in the process, far more than you will uh, receive if you uh, plead guilty 60 days into the process. The further you go into the process, the more work that you ask the state to do, the more you hold the state to its burden, its constitutional burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt the more time you will do in prison. And if you require the state to take you to trial, in many instances, people are facing the death penalty and life sentences. And so, again, innocent people make the rational choice to avoid a trial. They give up their presumption of innocence because they cannot face the risk that is associated with going to trial. Um. So Peter, my, my father was a NASA engineer. He actually helped put a man on the moon. My sister's a doctor in Maine. And as a young lawyer, I did medical malpractice defense work. And what I learned from those experiences is that in, in medicine, in aviation, and really almost any other high-stakes field of human endeavor, there's a process called a sentinel event review. When something unacceptable happens, a crash of the space shuttle Challenger, or a really significant act of medical malpractice, there's a process by which 
you drop what you're doing, you look at the process that enabled that intolerable outcome to occur, and you figure out what happened so you can fix it. I find it astonishing that we don't see this in criminal justice. Can you talk about that? Sure. Um, I mean, I was on the board of a medical center, and whenever we had an unexpected, really bad outcome in the OR, we would do a root cause analysis to try and find out what happened. The purpose was not to point the finger at anybody. The purpose was to find out what systemically went wrong, tweak it to reduce the risk of it happening again. And uh, you used the two examples of medicine and aviation, but you could also say the same about private industry because they want to get it right too because it's going to affect their business. Um, but the reason you have that kind of uh, approach, like a root cause analysis, um, in those different sectors is because of who the affected population is. The affected population, in your examples, if things go awry in medicine, or if a plane crashes or a train derails, it's all the people in this room. So it is primarily, or considerably, at least significantly, um, white people, people of means. And uh, we all want to make sure that things are done better. Uh, and that's why we do those kind of root cause analyses. Unfortunately, in the criminal legal system, um, number one, you're dealing uh, largely with people who are poor. We're talking about crimes of, of violence that are prosecuted by the state. So people are generally poor. Uh, they're disproportionately people of color. And perhaps of equal significance or greater significance is they're just criminals. Who cares, right? And since people don't care and haven't cared, no one ever bothered to do those kind of sentinel events or root cause analysis, um, you know, investigations. And for the first time, the Innocence Project is, is changing that a little bit. Because when people realize that, my God, like that gentleman in the film said, I'm just living a nice middle-class existence. If it could happen to me, it could happen to any of you. Uh, when people begin to realize that, then all of a sudden they go, whoa, wait a second. You know, if, if all these people are being wrongly convicted, we have to do something about it. And if it requires that kind of um, sentinel event analysis or root cause analysis, then we do it. The problem is it's very difficult for the people who are primary players in the criminal legal system, I mean law enforcement, crime labs, public defenders, prosecutors, to, to engage in that kind of uh, introspection. Um, we fought for years to get it. Finally, the FBI did it after a scandal in which they acknowledged that in 96% of the cases where their hair experts testified for the prosecution to suggest that somebody's hair was found at a crime scene, uh, that their experts exaggerated the probative value of the evidence and provided unscientific evidence 96% of the time. And so with uh, pressure from the public, they engaged in a root cause analysis. And the root cause analysis said, well, when you set up this whole system, you should have had independent, smart statisticians who were in there from the very beginning when you developed a protocol to tell you how to do it and how you couldn't say more than the data provided. Okay, they read the report, but they haven't followed it. There are at least 25 other forensic disciplines that compare patterns, whether they're bullets, tire prints, shoe prints, 
uh, what have you. And we've asked them to bring on independent statisticians to help them, but they consistently refuse. And they've refused, whether it's a Republican administration or a Democratic administration, it doesn't matter, they refuse. It's been very difficult to bring these people into the 21st century. Christina, you told us a bit about the trial penalty and the role that it can play in producing false convictions. Are there other persistent causes of false convictions that come up over and over again? And if we bothered to do this kind of root cause analysis, we would uncover? Absolutely. First and foremost, eyewitness misidentification is a huge cause of wrongful convictions. Three quarters of the people who have been exonerated by DNA evidence uh, had eyewitness misidentifications in their case. Astonishingly, which is why I should add, the Innocence Project works incredibly hard to make sure that there are reliable and accurate protocols around eyewitness identification so that those, when that testimony is presented in a criminal courtroom, we can rely on it. Uh, we also know that false confessions play a significant role um, in wrongful conviction in this country. Um, we know that conduct like deception and interrogation, especially uh, when you're talking about vulnerable people like children, can and does lead people, astonishingly, to uh, confess to crimes they did not commit. So these are some of the examples. Oh, I should say, of course, um, unreliable and misapplied forensic science is also a key factor that contributes to wrongful conviction. And there are others. Um, we could talk about uh, police and prosecutorial misconduct and other factors. And I, and I think, though, the important thing I want to emphasize, though, sort of going back to the Sentinel event issue, is that one of the things that we are fundamentally lacking is a meaningful accountability structure in the criminal legal system. Um, and so unless and until there are consequences right, for these wrongful convictions, and right now there are not, um, they're going to continue. Right now we have prosecutors engaging in misconduct for which there are no consequences, misconduct that leads someone to be wrongfully convicted. Defense counsel making egregious errors that leads their clients to be wrongfully conviction, convicted for which there are no meaningful consequences. So unless and until we have real true accountability in the criminal legal system, uh, we're going to continue to have wrongful convictions in this country. Um, I'm going to come back to you in the next question to, to, to wrap up. but. Um, the word accountability is like catnip for me, so I'm going I'm to give, give Barry the second to last word. Um, as you and I both know, the Supreme Court invented out of whole cloth a number of immunity doctrines, qualified immunity that police routinely invoke when they have violated somebody's rights, and astonishingly, an even more robust form of immunity called absolute prosecutorial immunity, which is exactly what it sounds like, completely made up by the Supreme Court without a shred of textual or historical legitimacy, just to let prosecutors off the hook. I'm done. Comment. <laughs> Teed up for you. Is it, have I exaggerated in any way? No. Uh, and what's uh, extraordinary is that uh, we're talking about cases where everybody would agree that the Constitution was violated, but by, you know, saying, oh, well, uh, police officers acted in good faith, or uh, the prosecutor... Uh, uh, we're, we're not going to do anything because, you know, look, there's a, I understand that you don't want people practicing defensive prosecution the way we don't want doctors practicing defensive medicine. Uh, but still, there should be deterrence for intentional acts of misconduct. You saw in that tape uh, Michael Morton 
Michael Morton transformed the criminal justice system in Texas. Uh, it's not so much that we found the DNA showing that some other person had killed his wife when he was out at work uh, and then went on to commit a same kind of break-in murder in Austin, Texas. Uh, it wasn't just that. It's that we discovered that the prosecutor in that case hid exculpatory evidence that somebody had been had seen a person casing Michael's house the night before um, to do this kind of break-in um, when that was his defense at trial and the prosecutor never revealed it. There was other things. So we actually turned around. There's this crazy thing they call in Texas a court of inquiry. So we brought a court of inquiry against that prosecutor, Ken Anderson, because we demonstrated that he intentionally did this. But there was no real statute of limitations that run completely. So we were able to actually get him on contempt as a continuing offense. He was a judge in the courthouse in Williamson County and writing books teaching other prosecutors how to be a prosecutor. Um, and thankfully, he got 10 days, uh, served, I don't know, six, um, for the, the misdemeanor of contempt in Texas um, and then disbarred. But it led to the best discovery law just about in the country. It led to changing the system in terms of being able to disbar prosecutors. But we really ought to have an end to absolute immunity and, and a simple one that uh, the tort system in this country would understand. You can have liquidated damages if you can prove that a prosecutor intentionally engaged in misconduct that resulted in the conviction of an innocent person. Just do that. It's hopefully going to be extremely rare, but if you just do that, there's some deterrence. The other big issue out there has to do with policing. And it is very disappointing to see that the United States Congress could not come to terms uh, over the George Floyd Act and just take two provisions of it. Let's, I know qualified immunity, we know killed it. But there were two other things that had been in uh, the 21st century policing recommendations, agreement across the board. Um, and that was we should be able to track police officers who have been disciplined, disciplined for misconduct, lying and cheating by their own departments. But because of laws all across this country and states, uh, that is not known. So you, you see this on all the police shooting case, whether it was uh, Van Dyke in Chicago who had all these uh, charges against him, or uh, Eric Garner in New York, uh, uh, Officer Pantaleo, uh, Tamir Rice. All these cases, including Derek Chauvin, right, um, in Minnesota itself, the George Floyd case, they all had prior undisclosed acts of misconduct that judges, that prosecutors, that lawyers didn't know about. Now, those secrecy laws have to go. And I will tell you the best bill in the country right now that just got passed that you all should look at is Senate Bill 2 in California. You'll like it. It has some qualified immunity uh, fixes in it. But what it does is something simple that every, every state should adopt. It says, now, every police officer should get a license, right? So you get a certificate, you get a license, certain training that you have, there's a standards uh, that will apply statewide in California, including dishonesty, uh, uh, sexual misconduct, 
uh, all kinds of things that you would expect could disqualify somebody from being a police officer, because unfortunately with all these union contracts, you know, you go into arbitration, if it's no family conviction, you don't get canned in so many places. But the other key part of this bill, because I was talking before about lousy data in the criminal justice system, it is astonishing to know that in just about in every state in this country, the shield number of a police officer is not a unique identifier. There is no unique identifier. But Senate Bill 2 in California says you get a license, you get a police officer standard and training license, and it must be a unique identifier. So we can see when cops get fired in one police department and go to another. We can track people who do bad things in courts where judges find they violated the Constitution or they beat people up or they just lied and, they're and or they do something internally in their department. We can track them because there's a unique identifier. This is the first time that's happened and it's gotta happen in every state. I think that the Biden administration and the Congress uh, should at least agree that you don't get any burn money for policing, which is the, the statute that you know, funds, uh, feds use to fund the states, unless at least you have a system in your state where there's a license and a unique identifier. It's a fundamental of any business system. You can't manage what you can't measure. And if you can't track police misconduct, you'll never fix it. So, Christine, I um, to tell you that I've been sort of, um, I've had butterflies in my stomach all day because I idolize you guys, and I'm so honored to be up here with you. And, you know, you have an amazing background. Um, you, you were federal public defender, you were head of the appellate unit in New York. Um, you were one of the very few African-American women who's argued a Supreme Court case. You have been the leader of the Innocence Project now for about a year, and I just wonder, where do you go from here? What are you going to do with your team of superheroes? Thank you. <laughs> and I do have a team of superheroes, so thank you for, for acknowledging that. Um, so the Innocence Project is going forward. We're going to fight for fair and effective and compassionate systems of justice for everyone. We're going to continue to fight to free the innocent, and we're going to work incredibly hard to finally bring an end to wrongful conviction in this country. In order to do this, we're gonna redouble our commitment to science. We're going to scrutinize the data and find the trends in the cases. And we know today that means we're going to have to examine and scrutinize emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and facial recognition software, not only for reliability and accuracy, but we need to consider the ethical, social, legal, racial implications of the use of that kind of technology and ask ourselves whether it belongs in the criminal legal system. We're also going to look at such issues as racial discrimination and the role that racial bias plays in wrongful conviction in this country. We're also going to look at law enforcement, police and prosecutorial accountability and make sure that people are held accountable uh, for the mistakes that they make that contribute and cause wrongful conviction. At the end of the day, the Innocence Project is going to restore lives. We're going to support and build a movement uh, to 
to, to ensure right, innocent people are no longer convicted of crimes. And we are going to transform the system of justice in this country. Thank you. Well, it's, uh, it's been a real honor, and uh, I'm so proud to have been able to be part of this. Thank you for coming, and thank you for, for uh, accepting our award, and thank you to all of you. It's been a wonderful evening, and uh, thanks for your support. Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld are co-founders of The Innocence Project, where Christina Swarns serves as executive director. The Innocence Project is the 2021 recipient of the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. Among Illinois' many problems, state pensions stand out. And they stand out because many other states will be facing very similar problems in just a few years. Adam Schuster is a budget and tax research director at the Illinois Policy Institute. We spoke for the Cato Daily podcast about how Illinois' problems with pensions could be coming to a state near you. So to the extent that listeners don't care about Illinois state pensions, which is to say pensions guaranteed to uh, government employees, former government employees, quasi-government employees in some cases, um, they should because Illinois is a case study in how not to fund, how not to set up, how not to build pension obligations into your state constitution. And for, but for a lot of states that are, pensions are a third tier maybe a second tier issue, uh, they will be a big issue. And it's a, it's a slow moving tidal wave for a lot of state budgets. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. Um, depending on whether you do it on a market basis or an actuarial basis, uh, nationwide public pension debt is somewhere between 1.6 trillion, as high as nearly $5 trillion. So it, it is a nationwide problem. Uh, Illinois is the worst uh, in the nation when it comes to our pension crisis. Uh, according to Moody's Investor Services, for example, just the state systems, not even including, you know, local pensions for police, fire, all these other local government employees, just the state pension systems have $317 billion in unfunded liabilities. Um, and this this matters not only for, for the whole nation, not only because um, what happens in Illinois with our pension crisis is likely to set the stage for what happens elsewhere as uh, pension debt becomes a, a bigger problem in these other states, but also because our state politicians are already trying to get the federal government uh, to bail us out to solve this problem for us. Uh, when the pandemic struck, for example, our Senate president wrote a letter to Congress asking for about $45 billion uh, in bailout money just for Illinois and about $10 billion of that was going to be deposited into the pension fund under his plan. So uh, you could be on the hook for these even if you don't live in Illinois. Now, let, let's try to analogize what this looks like for a lot of people who don't have to pay attention to it uh, because they're not affected by it directly. I mean, except as they are taxpayers. Um, the state government makes a contract with a state worker uh, at the beginning of their career. And over the course of that 
government employee's career. They contribute some amount of money, the normal cost, if you will, into a state pension fund. And the free lunch that lawmakers thought they were going to get broadly was, we put this money away now. It goes into a broadly diversified, although we can quibble about whether or not that actually was has been the case, broadly diversified market investments. Uh, equity markets tend to go up. And at the end of this person's 25, 30, 35 year uh, government career, that money will have grown and we pay the pension out of that money. And that's the that's the promise. Right. But the incentives are not aligned properly for lawmakers in many of these many states, not just Illinois, to not put the money away that they say that they were going to put away. That's true. And, uh, you know, when you can spend that money on services that are much more visible, that uh, actually provide a lot more value to people and run for re-election on them, or when you can uh, put less aside than you really needed to um, so that you can keep lower tax burdens, uh, this is this is an incentive uh, for politicians. Um, unfortunately, uh, in, in Illinois, you know, sort of like we said at the beginning, we are a case study in everything not to do, uh, how not to set up a pension system. Um, our state government employees who who work their career in state government, so about 30 years or more, uh, average about $2.3 million in lifetime pension benefits. Uh, many of them retire in their 50s. Uh, if you work 20 years, you also get free health care. Um, and the employees' contributions uh, only account for about 5% of the cost of that benefit. So the vast majority of this uh, is taxpayer funded. Um, and in, in Illinois, uh, the benefits have grown uh, to such an outrageous degree, um, about a 533% increase in pension spending adjusted for inflation over the last uh, 20 years that we're starting to actually crowd out those services that the politicians were originally uh, you know, hoping to uh, uh, bolster by, by not putting enough money aside. So that 533% increase in pension spending has been accompanied by a, about a one-third drop in spending on a range of core government services like public safety, uh, higher education, anti-poverty programs. Um, and so in Illinois, the, the, the uh, status quo is that we are consistently asking people to pay more because pensions are driving tax hikes in the state to get less in return, less services in return. Uh, and that's why people are fleeing Illinois in droves because it's a, it's a terrible situation. Adam Schuster is a budget and tax director at the Illinois Policy Institute. Health savings accounts were a legislative stowaway that have since become one of the most promising avenues for reforming American health care. The problem, most Americans still don't know much about them. Cato's Michael Cannon explains how they work. Jeff Singer in a recent Cato paper used uh, medical freedom to make the pitch that uh, it used to be a widely respected right in the United States, referring, I think, to, to Thomas Jefferson having said, look, the freedom of speech is every bit as important as being able to make your own decisions about uh, medicines and health. And uh, he was using that to say th that 
medical freedom was foundational, that it was absolutely critical to our rights as Americans. Uh, so what kind of system do we have now if that if those were the views of, the, of at least um, one of the more prominent founders? Well, we have the right to make our own healthcare decisions. That's a fundamental human right. They, the early Americans respected it well into the 20th century. But then Americans started losing their right to make their own healthcare decisions through a series of actions the government took, many of which didn't seem to relate to healthcare at all. And one of those was the creation of the income tax. The creation of the income tax may have done as much as anything that that government has done to violate our rights to make our own healthcare decisions. Among the innovations that have allowed Americans a greater ability to make those kinds of decisions for themselves, the health savings account. Describe what that is briefly. Well, first you have to understand how the income tax took away our rights to make our medical decisions uh, because health savings accounts restore the, a large measure of the rights that the income tax took away. Shortly after Congress created the income tax, uh, the IRS ruled that if your employer provides you health insurance, they were not going to tax that as income. But if your employer gave you the same money as cash so that you could buy your health insurance, then the IRS would tax that as income. You can see what that does. It creates a situation where either you buy a, uh, you let someone else control your money and choose your health plan for you, a type of health plan the government has chosen, one that's tied to employment, or if you want to take that money and purchase your own health insurance, a plan that you prefer, the government taxes you. That looks an awful lot like an individual mandate where either you buy a government-designed plan or you have to pay more money to the government. That takes away, that took away, shortly after the income tax uh, took effect in 1913, took away Americans' right to make their own healthcare decisions. Uh, it led to this employment-based system of health insurance that covers more than that covers 90% of Americans with private coverage and has increased the cost and reduced the quality of health insurance and medical care. Worst of all, however, it's violating our rights to make these decisions for ourselves. What health savings accounts do is they allow us to take that money that our employer is spending on our behalf and uh, take that as income without penalty so that we can make those decisions ourselves. So it's probably dramatically understated the degree to which uh, providing employers with this tax benefit fundamentally altered the relationship between individuals and their healthcare decisions. It really is. Right now, a typical family or a typical worker with family coverage through an employer sees their wages reduced by $16,000. So the employer can take that money and put it toward their the premium for their family coverage. Imagine if every worker with family coverage got to control that $16,000 and use it to purchase the health plan that they prefer, a health plan that doesn't disappear when you experience a change in employment. Not only would that provide better coverage to people, and not only would uh, the 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 uh, wage income of, of families across the country rise dramatically, but they would get better coverage and they would be much more careful about how they spend that money. They would demand price competition from employers and healthcare would be more affordable because we would have much more price competition bringing healthcare within the reach of more and more Americans. 
So the health savings account, we've uh, alluded to it a little bit here, but give us the big picture in terms of what that actually delivers for people and their ability to make those kinds of choices. So uh, right now, health savings accounts are a very limited sort of uh, provision of uh, tax law. What they do is they let people who enroll in a high deductible health insurance plan put money aside in a tax-free account, the health savings account, to pay for their out-of-pocket medical expenses. So that money that goes into your health savings account receives the same preferable tax treatment as money that your employer spends on health insurance for you. So that's all to the good. It allow, allows workers to control part of their healthcare dollars without penalty, but it doesn't allow them to control all of their healthcare dollars. When you look at the entire economy, uh, that provision of the tax code that lets employers control your healthcare dollars and make your healthcare decisions, it, it allows employers to control $1 trillion of workers' earnings all across the economy. And health savings accounts have only let workers recapture about 4% of that money, about $40 billion. What we need to do with health savings accounts is expand them so that workers can tr control 100% of that money. They can control all $1 trillion of their earnings that the federal government is now letting employers control or really coercing workers into letting employers control because the government will penalize workers if they try to take that income as cash that they control. So the way to do that is to expand health savings accounts so that workers with family coverage can put all $16,000 of the money that their employer puts toward their health plan premiums into the worker's health savings account so the worker can control that and choose a health plan that works for them. And if they want to stay in their employer plan, they can just give that money right back to the employer as premium payments. But the decision should be the workers, not the governments, and not the employers. Michael Cannon directs health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Cheap and rapid COVID testing was supposed to be one of the key pillars of escaping this pandemic sooner than later. The FDA's processes didn't allow it, and for the most part, they still don't. Cato's Scott Lincecum for the Cato Daily Podcast to discuss the current availability of rapid take-home tests and why the regulatory hurdles still stand in the way. The FDA has only approved a few more. Uh, I think it's now six total. Um, and three of those, however, they only approved a couple weeks ago. And so uh, those aren't even on the market. And you have three rapid tests. It's very hard to get them. Um, you know, you can find them if you scrounge around, but they are not, like you said, in Europe, you can you can get there are hand baskets of these things on sale in Germany and the Netherlands. In the UK, you can you can just basically email the government. They'll send you a seven pack anytime you want for free. Um, it's just it's just not it's just not um, omnipresent here like it should be and like it needs to be to have a viable testing regime. It, it's strange because, you know, the the parallel or I guess it's not really a parallel because for more than a year, Americans were told you may not have this vaccine. And now, seven, eight months after the vaccine began to be rolled out, we have the president of the United States saying, if you are employed in the private sector and you have yeah. any tangential connection to government whatsoever, you must 
take right. this vaccine and for rapid te- and w- so with with testing production we it's sort of a weird parallel where yeah. the and FDA says the FDA says no these aren't good enough you can't have them and now we have Joe Biden announcing I'm going to use the Defense Production Act yeah. to ramp up production of this when uh, at any point in the last year and a half a president or uh a regulatory agency could have said simply, well, they're not perfect, but uh, we want to get these out there as soon as possible. Yeah, it's all really mind boggling. Again, this is not new technology. This is not like mRNA vaccines that maybe needed some government support for initial research. I mean, this is really basic tech. There's a massive demand sitting out there, uh, Americans desperate to get them. You know, I Germany uh, is kind of one of the, the leaders in this. They've approved like 60 different at-home tests. So these things are available um, and Americans are desperate to have them. I'll, you know, and particularly right now, as schools struggle with trying to reopen without, again, without vaccines for kids um, and COVID protocols and just trying to keep things, keep the bus moving, right? We we really, there is still this, this demand. And it's only now that the president is going to inject a bunch of money to get uh, a bunch of rapid tests. And quite frankly, you know, uh, given where we are in the pandemic, there are questions about, you know, whether... And again, given that these there are so many rapid tests already out there that the FDA hasn't approved, it's just really a question about w- what is this going to accomplish? Um, and then, of course, the other, I think, really important part of this is that here you have this new vaccine or test mandate, and we might not even have any tests available or enough tests to do the or or test part. Right. You know, one of the talking points is this isn't a vaccine mandate. It's a testing mandate. Right. Right. The testing or should say the production of rapid tests seems only to be in furtherance of a mandate. Yeah. And it all just it's very, very frustrating. But but, you know, and this goes back. I said there's a practical problem. That's what you know, what what we were dealing with on the FDA side. But there's also this this broader philosophical and regulatory problem with our public health regulatory regime right and 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 this i think is just a a risk aversion to a fault right and it goes back to this classic trolley problem situation and so you know if you imagine that there's uh, a trolley on a track and there's a guy standing at a switch and if the guy pulls the switch, the trolley will change tracks and go and end up running over like one person. But if he doesn't touch the switch, the trolley will head straight ahead and run over 10 people, right? So this is a classic kind of ethical dilemma. It's not exactly an easy answer, but for a regulatory agency considering about how to, you know, uh, maximize uh, public health, uh, and save human lives, you would want the agency to be actually biased towards pulling the switch, right? Towards, uh, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately having maybe one death, but saving um, thousands of lives um, by 
uh, not letting the trolley just continue forward. But unfortunately, it's the exact opposite here, right? The the FDA is really hardwired. And, and, you know, it's not just the FDA. We've seen the CDC doing similar stuff. It's really kind of the whole public health bureaucracy is really hardwired not to pull the switch. Um, that they it really is only approve, whether it's drugs or tests, when uh, they're basically perfect. Um, and until then, you just let the deaths happen. You you let the the casualties of inaction occur. And that's that's, you know, again, what we've seen in the testing regime, instead of potentially having a couple adverse events, a couple negative uh, reactions, um, they they prefer to just let have no testing regime at all. Scott Linsicum is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Mustafa Akil's new book is Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, available at libertarianism.org. In it, Akil critiques the more typical authoritarian interpretations of Islam and describes the seeds of liberty that have fallen out of favor among many Islamic traditions. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. This is not your first book exploring themes like this, uh, and we've talked about him on the Cato Daily Podcast on a number of occasions uh, and other other places as well. So what what is the case that you're making here? Thank you, Caleb. Uh, my newest book, which just came out this week, Why as a Muslim I Defend Liberty, is a book, it's, it's a short little book which summarizes all my basic arguments about the intersection of Islam and liberty in a nutshell. And and with new ideas, with new arguments, with new stories, with new thought experiments that I have not written before. So if uh, I want to give somebody an introduction to what I think on this big issue, this gigantic issue of whether the Islamic civilization can accept liberty in the classical liberal sense, uh, th- this book is is at least a beginning to, to that conversation. Uh, and I have chapters about religious freedom or freedom of speech. I have chapters about the market economy, like free markets and Islam. And also I address a few things, like for example, there's a chapter saying, is liberty a Western conspiracy? Because uh, for a lot of Muslims uh, in the modern world, liberty, freedom, these are concepts they've been hearing from Western powers, European powers or the United States. And, and, they, and these powers have a colonial history. I mean, France occupied Algeria, uh, being, uh, claiming to bring freedom to Algerian women. But it was a colonial power that occupied the country, it brutalized the country. So I want to disentangle all these concepts and saying that, you know, Western colonialism, imperialism is something else. We should criticize it. We have the right to criticize it. Actually, liberty is the principle that we can use to criticize it, to say we oppose it. And I show actually how the first Muslim liberals, self-defined people who, uh, it was called Ahrar, which means people who support Hurriya which is the Islamic term for freedom or the Arabic term for freedom. I show how Islamic liberals in the late Ottoman Empire and the Arab world defended freedom for their societies. At the same time, they opposed Western colonial interventions. So the book puts the argument and also 
clears the ground uh, and and uh, tries to uh, get over with some of the confusions about the notion of liberty in Muslim uh, culture today. So early on, you quote the Quran and uh, you quote verse 256 of the second chapter of the Quran. And the line is, there is no compulsion in religion. Uh, unpack that. Sure. I mean, that is probably the probably the beginning of any discussion on Islam and freedom. That's a verse that what I would call the liberal-minded Muslims love and quote and re-quote all the time. You know, it's right there in the Quran. There is no compulsion in religion. But if you look at some conservative uh, interpreters, uh, which I quote in this book, they actually take a much more <laughs> reserved uh, take on that verse. Actually, after I quote, I quote that verse, which, which, by the way, came to Prophet Muhammad in Medina to rule out forced conversions to Islam. There were, there were families in Medina, this was during the time of Prophet Muhammad, and they had children who had become Jewish, and ha were they supposed to force them uh, convert to Islam uh, back, uh, and the worst ruled out against that. So that's very interesting. Uh, so it was a worst really that upheld religious freedom. Uh, however, I also quote a Turkish imam uh, who gave a passionate sermon a few years ago, and he says, there is compulsion in Islam. He says, there's only no compulsion to Islam. Like, if you're not a Muslim, you will not be forced to become a Muslim. So we can allow people to remain Jewish or Christian, which was the case in throughout Islamic history, uh, although they were not treated equally, so that's another problem. Uh, but he says, once you're Muslim, you have to, you are subject to the laws of Islam, quote unquote, which means you cannot be an apostate. You can't leave the religion. That that, that is a, a crime punishable by death. Plus, you are under the authority of the religion police. So you can be disciplined to wear your headscarf if you're a woman or your face whale. Uh, you are you can be forced to do your prayers, which is exactly these days what Taliban is exactly bringing back to Afghanistan. I mean, groups like the Taliban are acting on some of the interpretations uh, of Islam that are out there. So we cannot deny those things. One thing I emphasize, though, is that Christianity had similar interpretations. If you look at the history of Christianity, there was a time that from just one verse in the Gospel of Luke, which says, compel people to enter to my church. Uh, a doctrine of compella intrare was created by Christians, which was the basis for forced conversions, torturing people for their own good, supposedly by the Inquisition. And, and But Christianity outgrew that phase. So in the book, I go back and forth often between these reinterpretations in Christianity. I discuss a lot of Locke, John Locke, and his ideas on freedom in, in the Christian tradition, how that resonates with some of the steps that we need to take in Islam today. And Islamic reformists and moderns are indeed arguing for. So you are quick to sort of separate out what uh, Sharia is what it should not be and what it should be. So what is Sharia, first of all, and then break that up? Well, for our listeners, the easiest way to explain the Sharia may be to compare it to another legal tradition in another religious tradition, and that is the Halakha of Judaism. Islam, just like Judaism, is a 
to some extent, legalistic religion in the sense that you believe in God, that's good. And what do you do with that belief? Well, you obey God's law, which means you don't eat pork, right? You have the Sabbath. I mean, that's for Jews in Islam. We don't have the Sabbath, but like there is cir there is circumcision of male boys, ma male children, right? So these kind of practices, dietary laws, dress codes, Islam is very much similar to that. And in that sense, if it means your personal religious practices and, and a communal way of life as well, there's nothing wrong with that. That just like the way Orthodox Jews are living according to the Halakha in New York and it's their choice and everybody respect that and that's not a problem. That's that's a, that's an expression of religious freedom. But in an Islam, the Sharia also has a very long and unbroken relationship with state power. So medieval jurists said, okay, this is what God tells us. This is how women should be dressed. Okay, so we should tell them and it's their choice. They didn't think like that. They said we should tell them and make sure that they do that. Otherwise, we beat them up. So that is that coercive interpretation. And my argument is that that really doesn't come from the Quran. I mean, the, the core of Islam. It's just medieval scholars. And, and in medieval society, that was how society was structured. And we should give up that idea. On the other hand, uh, I know the Sharia is a toxic term in the West and people are always afraid of it, but I'm also highlighting in this book that there was something also very precious about the Sharia in, in classical Islam. Uh, so there, you will see a chapter titled, What We Should Revive from the Sharia, which I believe will surprise some people. And there I uh, highlight one aspect of the Sharia. Since Sharia was a God-given law, uh, its brutal interpretations are a problem. But it also had the idea that it is a God-given law that is about everybody, that is beyond political rulers. It is even about the rulers. So you have episodes in Islamic history where the sultans, the rulers, were called upon to obey the Sharia and not confiscate people's property, for example. We have cases of, uh, for example, I, I begin with the story of the Ottoman sultan, uh, called by uh, the Sheikh al-Islam, that was the top jurist of his time, to a court because the Ottoman Sultan persecuted a Greek architect that was working for him. And the Greek architect went to the court and said, the Sultan has violated my rights. And the court called the Sultan. So uh, if we look into the spirit of it, the idea that there is a God-given law about the rulers, that's a precious law. Uh, I think understanding in 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 Western history, the equivalent to that was the idea of natural law. Like there are natural laws that are beyond the rulers, God-given rights, inalienable rights of human beings that are above the governments. So I think if we Muslims in the modern world re-understand Sharia not as brutal punishments, not anything that oppresses women or society, but as a piety, as a code of piety, voluntarily practiced and also on the political sphere as a set of rights and ideas, values that are about political authority, I think that's the right way to go. Uh, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but when the founders of the United States were crafting these documents uh, that ultimately became uh, the documents that are supposed to be standing law in the United States, uh, when they imagined religious freedom, when they considered the outside edge of what religious freedom should cover, 
there's some evidence that they were thinking about Islam. And, and so I suppose, do you know what they were considering when they were considering Islam as the something that ought to be protected by religious liberty? I mean, I uh, surely you and probably other colleagues at Cato know about that much better than me. But I myself have looked into that and I've realized that the founding fathers of the United States actually referred to Islam in the context of religious freedom. Actually, I have a quote from Thomas Jefferson in this book, Why as a Muslim I Defend Liberty, on page 21. Thomas Jefferson said, there should be religious freedom for the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian and the Mahometan, the Hindu, the infidel of every denomination. Well, the Mahometan is not a very accurate term. We don't call ourselves Mahometans, but Muslims. But I mean, it was an ancient but followers term for of Muslims. Muhammad. Yeah, followers the followers of Muhammad. He was trying to say that, and I think it didn't mean anything negative there. And the the infidel again is is a subjective term there. But what Thomas Jefferson was saying in this very interesting quote is that the United States should be a country for people of every faith and infidels. I mean, that is atheists and people who don't even believe and Hindus and Muslims and so on and so forth. And that really what happened. I mean, uh, people now, uh, these days, I, I'm in the US in the past few year, uh, years and I see people criticizing a lot of issues in the United States about race and I understand those problems. But from a religious freedom perspective, the United States is really admirable in, in, in many senses of the world. I mean, it's a country where people can practice their religion piously, and including Muslims. Uh, actually, I said recently on Twitter that there's one country in the world that Muslims of all sects, from Sunnis and Shiites and Salafis and Ahmadis, live freely and together, fully worship their religion without any problem, and that's the United States. It's the most diverse uh, country for Muslims. Mustafa Akioli is author of the new book, Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty. For the past two and a half years, the Cato Institute has been studying ways in which California can reform its policies and programs to help lift people out of poverty and enable all Californians to fully participate in the state's economy. Now Cato has released its final report on the Project on Poverty and Inequality in California. The project's proposed reforms move beyond the usual debate over how much money to spend or what new regulations to enact offering instead specific proposals for reform of the state's approach to fighting poverty and creating a more inclusive economy. To learn more and read the full report, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.